Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Prior to 2020, there would be a great many people out there who would have had 2016 down as the year that everything changed. The British people, of course, voted to leave the European Union. Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. And Leicester City shocked the sporting world by winning the Premier League. And then in the background, a girl band called Fifth Harmony brought out a song titled Work From Home, which peaked at number two in the UK charts. Now, during the COVID-19 pandemic this year, a great many of us have had to become accustomed to working from home as a necessity. Although we did start to see a move toward a return to the workplace over the summer months, the autumn has now seen the government U-turn once again as Prime Minister Boris Johnson once again instructed people to begin working from home wherever possible. Now, with remote working looking like it will play a sizeable role in our working practices for quite some time yet, legal and tech experts, our radar, have put out a very helpful guide for businesses and we welcome the firm's CEO and founder, Gary Gallen, on to today's programme to discuss that matter in fuller detail. Uh, Gary, very warm welcome to you. Thank you ever so much for once again joining us on our programme. Good afternoon, Scott. Delighted to be a guest on the programme. It's wonderful for us welcoming you onto the uh, the show as well once more. Now, um, when it comes to home working, different businesses will obviously prefer different approaches and there is no one-size-fits-all solution to this. But what every business having to have staff work from home will, of course, need is a comprehensive home working policy. So what are some of the key elements, Gary, that such a policy should contain off the top of your head? There are quite a number of facets to that policy, of course, and it depends on the, t- the type of business, um, the sector that you are in, for example. It's more difficult in manufacturing industries, warehousing, etc. So each policy will need adaptation, and it, in effect, it's a, it's a risk assessment, a method statement, and a safe system of work in a home working policy for a business. So you'll need to um, assess what 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 does the business carry out? What is its mm. role and the individual roles of the people within? If if I look at our business, we are a professional services business. We teach and educate. We provide digital platforms and tools and services, and we're legal advisors. But of course, there is an element of that legal advice where we are in courtrooms, we are in tribunals, we're in police stations. So we have varied roles within the business. Mm. Some of those digital roles, very capable, very software-savvy individuals, very easy and capable to work from home. We also perhaps have an advantage because I um, set the business up only a few years ago. We're a fast-growth startup, scaling business. That brings its challenges with new staff coming in. We just recruited people just before... um, the pandemic and the, um, the mandatory um, go mm. home and closure of business premises. So inducting people in their kitchens next to the ironing board and the children and people that we've not physically met yet, homeworking challenges there. But in essence, you've got to look at the business, 
look at its sector, look at the roles that you ask your employees to carry out, and how can you enable them to work at home? And of course, when things were mandatory, um, if you, um, you know, you, there was no choice, you had to work from home. There are things like you have to look at disability, you look mm. at, have to look at carer issues, children were at home as well. There's been a lot of unusual dynamics with the whole home working policy. If you think about it, never perhaps as um, professional lives and personal lives being clashed together so abruptly that you have to, to try and risk assess. But you know what? The businesses, most of them that we deal with, are very used to risk assessment, method mm. statement, safe system and policy. So I think um, entrepreneurs and businesses as a whole have, have, have reacted remarkably well. But what, what equipment have you got? Laptops, um, mobile phones, mm. um, the type of access, VPN access and things into your systems. How paper-based a business are you as opposed to how were you paperless and digitized and automated previously? All of these things have to be looked at in those policies and have people got, uh, you know, people hadn't previously bought a home thinking Mm. it had to be their office and workplace for a, a quite lengthy period of time. So it might shape the housing market and what people look for in their houses in the future, thinking about a lot of homework. But where can a desk be put? Um, Where can mental health and wellness issues be accommodated as well as um, the digital workspace in the home? There is a lot to think about, but most of it is common sense. I think the biggest issue um, that we've been advising people about is just with the plethora of things that are going on, is just saying, look, apply your common sense to um, the jobs and the roles that your your staff has. It certainly, mm. however, is making people have to accelerate their thoughts about space, office space, and their continued need or use of it, the purpose of an office. And it has made people who perhaps had pushed away decisions about becoming a more digital, more agile cloud-based business, for example, allowing more easy access to, to data information, conducting things, it is making people now have to accelerate change digitally in their business. And, and let's be honest, a lot of the things that we're helping businesses um, do is just manage through process and the amount of things that's happening to their business, you know, income, loans, furlough decisions, um, it is a great deal to contend with. But in that mm. homeworking policy, essentially, what kind of a business am I? How am I delivering services to my customers? My staff are at home. Can I get them a laptop, etc.? Taking monitors home, taking, we had staff members that had back complaints and issues that we'd accommodated with specific types of equipment, chair, etc. We take, t- took them to people's homes or facilitated them taking necessary equipment from the workplace to their homes to try and make it as comfortable a situation um, and as well-rounded a workstation that they had at their home to be able to carry out the work that we were asking them to do. And certainly um, there need to be the uh, procedures and measures in place to keep um, people in regular contact with their business leaders because there is that challenge of leading from a distance and also measuring productivity. That's, of course, another issue. But then from the mental health side of things as well, when you are working from home so much, 
it can blur the lines between what is work and what is home, can't it? So management of the work-life balance, albeit it can be suitable to some people, it can also throw up a couple of other issues as well. Absolutely it can. I mean, other issues, again, it would be in a a home-working policy, the mental health, team communication, morale, um, instructions. Um, We're very collaborative. Um, in the business, so people need to communicate with each other. So we've conducted surveys. We've been very careful looking at data protection, information security. Um, that's obviously core to a home working policy as well. Um, we have uh, set up um, social activities online for people to remain connected as well. But the surveys and the communication and um, the team leaders, not just the leadership, but the team leaders um, that are working across the business as well. We have encouraged telephone call, video, um, agile communication about the social and the personal need, mm. family need. We've been asking about not it, that, that individual that might be our employee, um, they themselves might be quite robust and, and they might be okay, but they it, this has allowed us to uncover quite a lot of very more rounded and important information about our staff and employees in in a good way. So we know their extended care responsibilities, school issues, anxieties over wider family issues to appreciate more of the pressures on the people that are working on it with us. Um, And how can we help to support that? Um, But the, um, the, Lack of confidence, shall we say, quite understandably in many respects from um, from government, from um, World Health Organization, EU, etc. There are a lot of things going on and you have to try and support your own employees by as a leader of a business. Um, let's 
film and record them. Let's make it visual. Let's make it audio. Let's make it tangible so they can understand exactly how to log in in the with the office fob in the morning and demystify things. So as much as possible, confidence, certainty, transparency, mm. communication and engagement is crucial to make it work. Communication is absolutely vital. You're absolutely right, and. Um... I actually think that communication is one of the more vital things about it, just to combat the social isolation element of actually working from home as well. And that probably is one of the biggest arguments for maintaining a conventional office space as it is, because that human interaction, I think, is something that we certainly did take for granted pre-pandemic. And we're seeing the effects of that now and also just how beneficial it is to have that interaction for one's mental health. I, I couldn't agree more. There can't be trust in any relationship if there isn't conversation and communication. It's That is what builds relationship and from clarity of communication, feeling heard, feeling appreciated. Um, that uh, dialogue backwards and forwards is what builds the, the, the trust. And our staff contributed just as much to the return to the office and how to do it as any of the leadership team did. Um, because if we haven't got that um, that two-way street in communication, a dicta- dictating um, what will happen and how it will happen is is, is doomed to failure in in my view. And also, the, there is no one size fits all. For example, in in the legal side of our business, we have young lawyer trainees at the start of their career, and the need to look at their the quality of their training, the supervision of their the, the work that they're starting to carry out as they were only just starting their career and joining the firm, it is very difficult to train purely um, digitally those fresh young minds when they haven't got the teams of all the most senior 30 years experienced lawyers and team members 20 years, 15, etc. that blend of experience and expertise. And we're a multidisciplinary practice. So we've got lots of many different skill sets in the business purposely to share knowledge. As I said before, it's a collaborative business. So the need to be in the office and around that um, soaking up that atmosphere. So you've been given a task. Two things occur to you as you're working through that task. It's so easy just to turn to the colleague to the left of you or to the right of you or in front of you or behind you or just 20 feet down the office and talk to them, oh, I've thought about this. What do you think? Those those thirsty minds, those young trainees coming into the office, we got fantastic feedback from them about their desire to be around um, the rest of the team, to be able to be developed, get that collaborative, multidisciplinary approach, helping them join the profession. Similarly, some of our um, team members were in rented accommodation in in city centre locations. They were um, not in um, rural locations with gardens and freedom to roam and fresh air, etc. It's very hard for them as well um, to not be able to get into the office and to not feel some freedom after several weeks when... You know, they don't have so much as a window box to look at with a little, you know, some flowers or some greenery in it. And then, of course, we had some of the the, the other lawyers um, that were, shall we say, uh, more senior members, the empty nesters, the, the children were grown up working themselves and away. The office was very much a, a social place for them as well for communication um, and was a very important part of their day as much as carrying out the work. So... 
we know that there is a blend of need, but it's come out of the communication and the very, very positive engagement of the staff to be very open and transparent about mm. what they miss, what they like. How could we accommodate and facilitate that through the different stages of lockdown so far? Um, and I think we're better for it because we've been so willing to engage with the staff and listen to their needs. And so productivity has remained high. Mm. Um, on Honesty about how they're feeling and struggling a little bit. Some of members of staff, so we can look at extra support. We can look at access to um, whether it be counselling support or services or some specialist help to deal with some trouble spots. Um that could not be identified and we couldn't be as helpful as we should be if we weren't talking to the people that are the, the powerhouse of the business making it work at the end of the day. That engagement is so, so positive to really understand exactly what works for people because the work from home scenario, it isn't a one size fits all approach um, at all. Because as you say, some people do live in more rural locations where their accommodation is likely to be more suited to it. But in those more urban locations where, you know, accommodation is likely to be quite small for younger generations of people, especially working from home may not be necessarily as easygoing and experienced. That is a huge, huge point. Um, Another issue that working from home does also raise for a lot of businesses as well is a few questions over IT and data security as well because when you're all sort of scattered and working from home it can be quite easy to just sort of click a stray link um, with nobody else around you to offer any advice and cause a massive problem so that's also something that employers do have to be very aware of. Uh, Absolutely Um, and the, the penalties for a data breach the, the damage to reputation, brand, value of the business it can be as more devastating than the actual loss itself physically sometimes. Um, but the toll that it takes um, emotionally, reputationally wise, um, the effort and the anxiety to find the breach, plug the breach, remediate it, deal with your insurers communicate with customers, the uncertainty of how you'll be treated by the regulator for the nature of the breach, um, yes, it's, it's, it's a very important part. So it goes back to what you were talking about, the fundamentally, that's part of the um, key fabric as well of a work-from-home policy in many respects about not just enabling people to carry out the work, but then at distance, the security of the work, the data, the information, etc. So, And I think that's one of the things that I meant when uh, it's accelerating some people's thinking now about integration of systems, moving to new platforms, mm security around that Um, we had the benefit of being a a relatively new practice and purposely having left old traditional legal insurance type practices the business of radar when it was created i made sure that we were looking at it from the cloud and from the security point of view Mm. you know microsoft amazon etc very agile and let's be honest about this these people are powering governments and security services and military, etc. They spend more on security than any individual business is going to be able to do for itself. Mm. But this is where awareness of how these systems work, what they do for companies, um, can be a little bit daunting. And when you're trying to look at your bills, when you're trying to look at the VAT that is due, you're looking at your cost base, setting up people to work from home, also be trying to think, oh my, I've now got to think of digitalizing the business and working this new way. And suddenly you've got to find to digitize your business in a socially distanced, 
working from home type environment. So to try and interrogate vendors, find the best solution for your business and how to migrate your business to digital, you're also now doing it whilst you're wrestling with every other aspect of your business, looking after the health and welfare of your staff, yourself and your own family, paying the bills, and now trying to do a digital transformation is is very difficult for clients. Um, and so the information security absolutely is paramount, but you have to um, you have to investigate that in my view. We, we have to accept that COVID-19 uh, is here, COVID-20, COVID-21, 22 will be around the corner. The costs to businesses, the difficulty with the economy with recovering, then agile working, flexible working, um, remote working policies are here to stay and they will grow, I think, in significance for people and for individuals and social distancing is going to be with us, in my view, 2022, think about it, maybe being properly relaxed in many respects, but I think society needs to understand that all the way through to Christmas and the whole of next year, it's not going. The vaccine issue is paramount, of course. It's being rushed through. We have to be careful about that, follow scientists and medical professionals very carefully. But I think the social distancing rules are not going to go away and that will be um, something that will be business and personal life and society um, for a very long time to come, in my opinion. And while social distancing is there and even perhaps when a vaccine is in place and it can be relaxed and the virus itself is no longer an issue, however long that takes to come about, just because of the prolonged anxiety that this pandemic has caused as well and the impact it's had on consumer confidence to go out and live life as what we thought was normal, um, do you think that this is going to be something of a COVID hangover that is going to be with us for quite some time, even when there's a vaccine in place? So when we've actually got past all of this, the effects are still going to be lingering, aren't they? Yes. Um, I, I think it's so... Um, now it is very, very quickly become um, a part of the psyche. Um, it will take some getting over. And as I say, we, we, you know, we've had SARS, we've had other um, issues in the past as well, um, bird flu, foot, mouth, Kreutzfeldt, Jakob disease, the CJD, etc. And I think, as I say, we're at the, the, the COVID-19. We're already seeing evidence of mutation. Vaccine, we're trying to accelerate. That's fantastic to see. It's been tested on the most robust in society at the moment. So thinking about people with underlying medical difficulties, children born with special needs, etc., more vulnerable in society, elderly, different ethnic minorities, groups, etc., different dynamics. That takes some time for us to get comfortable with and ensure that a vaccine is the right kind of vaccine for all parts of society and it's safe. And it does what it's supposed to do. But we do know that with germs, we do know that with viruses, they don't stay the same, they mutate. So, yes, I think that now the world needs to understand that uh, it's had a, a stroke, as it were, if I can use that analogy. I mm. uh, I, I wrote a, a little LinkedIn blog the other day. I had the, the, the unfortunate um, circumstance where my father, um, from lack of understanding and awareness, his generation after the war, smoking got cancer, caused tumour and strokes and then ultimately death. This is almost, in my mind, like the world's had a stroke and we're slurring our words and we're dragging our limbs and we're slowly trying to get going again. Ironically, when everybody went home, 
the world got a breath of fresh air for itself and climate change and cleaner seas, etc. It started to recover when we withdrew from our heavy industrial climate polluting practices, etc. There is also out of this pandemic, I think, a chance for social cohesion, a chance for force of good to come through a chance to look at the planet, the environment, take a great deal of care. It's almost like a, a warning shot in some respect for looking at what got us here and how fast that virus has travelled. There is a lot of divisiveness in society, politics, leadership issues, etc., affecting the world at the moment. You take all of that together, and yes, I think COVID has crystallised a great thing, a deal of things, and it's going to stay in people's hearts and minds for quite some time, I think. And you mentioned, of course, the planet there as well. Um, statistics do show that so many people now favour a green economic recovery from coronavirus. And it is the case that Prime Minister Boris Johnson seems determined not to let the economic effects of this um, hamper his um, green ambitions. Um, he's talked about the UK becoming the Saudi Arabia of wind power, £160 million worth of government investment going into the such measures. He says he's an evangelist for hydrogen fuels and all of this sort of thing. So do you think that now we're going to really start to see some positive steps toward addressing the climate emergency and moving toward a green economy? I would certainly hope so. Um, I, I, I'm part of that. I endorse that. Um, and I would hope that people would listen appropriately uh, appropriately to that. And I suppose I, I, I was once described by um, a, a close friend and a CEO of another business as the most outrageously optimistic person they've ever met. But I suppose I choose, choose my attitude and my mindset. And yes, I'm realistic. Difficult things happen, but I look to look to the ways to overcome. I look for an outcome. I try and find the positive. COVID has been devastating, but out of that, can it bring out some positives? Can it bring us closer together? Can it bring um, society to start recognising we have to treat each other and we have to treat the, the planet that we live in more sustainably, more fairly, and better? And I think that there will be um, a positive element that comes out of COVID in that respect. We do have to wait for certain elections and things to um, pan out. And hopefully um, that will mean that we get some leaders, that, um, at least like Mr. Johnson is professing, that he wants a, a greener, cleaner, fairer, smarter, more sustainable um, economic recovery. That's got to be right. But saying it is one thing. It's execution, it's delivery that is absolutely key. So, again, back to Scott, back to communication, um, mm. collaboration on these sorts of things. But it can either divide us or it can bring us together. And I would certainly be one that um, talks about bringing us together for smarter solutions. And I think enough people have recognized that change put off previously, ignored, we were doing okay, nothing was shocking us. Um, to the extent clearly that COVID has shocked the whole world simultaneously. Mm. Out of that shock, out of that slap, as it were, in the collective face of the world, one would hope that that's now made people think, oh, difficult things can happen. Let's not ignore, let's think about being better, being smarter. There's brilliant ingenuity out there in the world. Let's not ignore it. Let's embrace it. That's exactly right. And we have seen some serious collaboration during this period that's been one real positive to come out of the COVID-19 situation. And that's no more embodied in how the pharmaceutical companies have been working together, of course, sharing IP, um, removing the steps of bureaucracy to make the 
pathway to a vaccine far swifter albeit some people do have their reservations about that but that's just one example of the unprecedented collaboration we have seen and the whole business world can sort of take a lot from that we've seen some amazing uh, collaboration between uh, historic competitors who've been sort of acknowledging the fact that they're in the same boat they've been talking to each other helping each other through and it is a moment where we can really sort of look back and think this was a moment where we really united and we pushed forward for the sake of better solutions and hopefully that is exactly what's going to happen like you've said there i I would hope so and i look we we deal a lot with the the education sector the charity sector um, the care and health sector as clients helping them with governance compliance people management, data protection, insurance for these activities, etc. And we've been an advocate for change, education and support to help talk to people about how they can deal with the complexity of rules, changing rules, Brexit, etc., etc. And talk to them about, well, the regulations are there to stop a harm. They don't prevent a good. The outcome you're driving to is a good. Let us start removing the perceived obstacles and show you how you can deliver those services, move forward, etc. And I think more of that needs to come along because obviously those sectors have been very hard hit. I have children in education. They've missed out on education. My youngest daughter was not able to sit her GCSEs. She wasn't able to, to, to leave school in the normal manner and say cheerio to her friends, that kind of thing. And she's still struggling now because of lockdown in the next stage of her career. So the education sector has been hurt. Care, we know enough about as well, and the anxiety in the, in the care sector. But what kind of a society, a global or a national society, are we going to be if we don't actually try and help our charity our care and health and our education sectors through a very difficult time. So let's start looking at technology about um, smart lessons, better care and supporting those sectors because we won't be a great society at all and we'll certainly be more divided uh, and more aggressive between each other, in my humble opinion, if we do not support the education sector, charity and health and care sectors through this. And as you've highlighted, there's been some um, fantastic collaborations at the moment to try and look for a vaccine between perceived previous competitors to try and create ventilation machines, engineers, manufacturing plants, people that were on furlough, suddenly volunteering and supporting and and taking food to the vulnerable and the shielded, etc. Let's try and encourage more of those features, care and health, education and charity Mm. in society. We'll be better for it. Exactly right. And also, we shouldn't forget those vast amounts of youngsters out there who are probably looking on at the economic impact of COVID and are downhearted by what it's doing to their employment prospects. So as a business owner yourself, Gary, what message would you have to give those young people to really get them to pick up their heads and start on that road to success, even in this trying time? Well, that's a very good point, actually. And I think there is still a great deal of opportunity. And I think um, in many respects, we, we look for youth. And I know a number of other CEOs and business leaders that do because we're, we're, we're a change business. We're about modernization. We don't fear change. We look to embrace artificial intelligence and technology as smart tools. Um, I look at those sorts of things just, you know, there is a reason why we don't have the horse and plough anymore. We have the tractors, the combine harvesters. It is a tool. It does not remove the human. It can allow the the human to look at more sophisticated, next generation, smarter solutions and move forward. It is an important tool. So 
I would still be saying to um, youngsters, look to your education. Look to now what on the other side of this pandemic are going to be the skills, the opportunities that will need to be um, delivered and grown. I know it would be difficult and, and it would be unrealistic to say so to try and find placements and work experience in this current environment whilst the industry is wondering what to do with existing workforces. But there are pockets of recruitment. There is opportunity that is out there. So do as much reading. Do as much learning. Find as many online skills and courses as you possibly can. I still do. I go on Coursera. I go on YouTube. I'm a thirsty learner. So don't give up on learning. Don't give up on the education. It is absolutely the key. And still try and put the applications that's out there. So um, it will be a difficult period, but we will come through. And if you are looking at sectors, there are some, some fantastic free research and material. So whether you look at the what's on there from the business schools, from the universities, from the consultancy businesses, the McKinsey's, the Baines, etc., the Willis Towers, Watson of this world, there's lots of fantastic. Consume it, read it, and start to understand because people are writing some fantastic papers at the moment on the new business models and the smart next generation business solution. So if you want to apply for a job, reference that you've read those reports, put something in that's a little bit personal about how you're still learning, how you're still trying to move forward, how you want to contribute to the world of work, economy, society. And maybe just when you're applying, think about saying, this is what I'm looking at. And I think I've got a thirsty mind and I've got ambition and I've got some innovative ideas to contribute to a business. Businesses are starting to look at that now. They are recognizing that they need a new target operating model. And there is also always growth. Certain sectors are growing now through this um, that um, are accelerating. So look for those pockets. Look for the insight. But I would say keep on with the learning. But start to look at some of those new business models and those research papers and those new industry insight papers. They are free and they are there. So a little bit like Mark Twain, one of my paraphrasing quotes that he said, um, if you have the gift of, of reading and you can learn knowledge, please use it. Otherwise, you may as well have been a plant. <laughs> That's so, absolutely fantastic. I, I love yeah. that, Gary. I really do love that. Honestly, I've said it so often on this program, and it's always something that I do come back to with so many guests on the show, but leadership itself is all about learning, isn't it? No matter what senior position you're in, no matter how old you are, you never stop learning. Leadership is a continuous process of improvement and development, and especially for those younger generations out there looking to better themselves. There are so many resources out there, and you can read, you can seek out online resources, educational podcasts, you can look for mentors as well learning and seeking out those things taking advantage of your networks those are some of the most valuable things that you can do uh, absolutely and um i went to university undergraduate postgraduate professional career etc but i'm doing what i'm doing now because i'm still a thirsty learner and i'm looking to where can i improve where can i personally um, be more self-aware, my effects on others, how I communicate with others. How can You can't be a, a great leader without effective communication. So I continue to look to learn, and, and I'll be quite candid and open. I've struggled with aspects of leading our business, talking to new employees, pitching the business to clients, etc. 
but you don't fear it. You step up to it. Um, and I've just looked at different courses, just looked at different programs and learned to adapt and do it digitally through a screen. Um, all of the software known to man, I'm now competent in. So whether that's WebEx or whether it's LoopUp or whether it's Zoom or whether it's Teams or whatever, you've had to learn very, very quickly in this great grand experiment how to communicate through multiple different channels. And you have to do it. But I was more naturally um, interactive and enjoy human collaboration, conversation, communication. Um, I'm not going to withdraw from it. I had to very quickly get used to um, the digital and the screen format and adapt to it and move quickly. But I looked things up about doing that, about how to be presenting my presentations better digitally to audiences um, in, in a new way. So, yes, constantly learning, constantly trying to communicate. And the more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know, which is a great thing because it will still motivate you to learn. But also what it does, it helps you recognize what you don't know so where to go and look to find the people that do th those other things that can supplement, that can help your business be better because they bring skills in that you recognize that you need, but you can't do them. Don't try being all things to all men. So it also shows where you need support, where you need mentorship externally or to recruit and bring in those talented people that can help the whole business learn and be better going forward. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed, Gary. Unfortunately, we are just about out of time on the programme today, but I've got to say it's been such a pleasure once again welcoming you onto the uh, the programme with us just to share your views on uh, what's going on in the world at the moment. And I think it would be fantastic, Gary, once again to catch up at some point at, in the next year once we start to have a better idea of which direction this pandemic is going in. And hopefully there'll be some positive news to share in terms of what we want to see in terms of future business collaboration and also prioritizing the planet going forward following all of this uh, absolutely and hopefully a, a few things that you and i have discussed might help a few other people uh, and pay it forward is the right attitude and i mm. think you have that and the leaders council have that so more than happy to do that scott and if it helps one person fantastic it's brilliant it's important to get the authentic voices of British industry out there into the national sphere for people to have access to. And especially for those younger generations of people tuning into this, I really do hope that you take this advice on board and really do learn something from this for sure. Uh, Gary, thank you ever so much um, for your time once again today. And do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on. Thank you, Scott. And the same to you and our audience. I'd also like to reiterate that message to the listeners tuning in as well. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this most trying time. It was a pleasure to welcome our Radar CEO and founder Gary Gallen onto today's programme. Coming up next on today's show, we'll be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, during his playing career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew um, has become um, a champion for many mental health causes and charitable concerns and spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with him about leadership and that is coming up now. 
Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus dress for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus dress who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is 
the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah I, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt, you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the, I think it was the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. (laughs) And I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one, drawing that game at the Oval to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know I felt like I'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later... Uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your 
time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that, you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually... The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda – was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all of that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I definitely had many. Um, because they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, 
impressive you might be as a person, they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so... I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move at times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in, your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon rather than 26. <laughs> Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that. 
in a good way. You know, felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration. Um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience Mm -hmm. and potentially a a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, We need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that Um I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves i can feel your enthusiasm for it as a as an essex fan i i'm still stumped as to i think i'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the oval or a team based at lords and i i'll, I'll get over that but i'll, I'll yeah, have to do well, it surely it's got to be the lords one right that sh- sh- of course yeah. <laughs> um sanju it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today thank you very much cheers As always, it has been a pleasure both listening to and learning from our guests. I have been your host, Scott Chaloner, and I hope that you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, I'll be occupying my usual corner in the Westminster Arms and raising a socially distanced glass to raising standards. And of course, I'll be making sure that I'm out the door by 10pm. Remember, stay well look after yourselves and do consider others because it does make such a difference in keeping people safe during this most difficult and unprecedented of times. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff or other guests of any other person therein associated.